have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner I'm very pleased to have as my Spirit in Action guest, Peterson Toscano. Raised Catholic, Peterson's born-again experience at the age of 17 catapulted him into the world of evangelical Christianity. Good, except that Peterson was, and is, gay. After 17 years of attempting to become ex-gay, he finally had to accept his reality and seek healing and wholeness. Through his theatrical and stand-up comedy pieces like doing time in the homo no mo halfway house and other work, Peterson has become a leading proponent of the ex-gay survivor movement. Peterson, welcome to Spirit in Action. Well, thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. It's so great that you're here. I get to spend the week with you over at the Friends General Conference gathering. If I understand correctly, you haven't been Quaker for too many decades. Uh, what did you actually start out as and how did you get to where you are? I was born in a liberal Roman Catholic Italian family outside of New York City. Lived like that until I was about 17. And then I had a conversion experience, a very powerful personal time with God alone in my room. And I didn't, didn't quite know what it was because there was nothing in my Catholic background to help me process what is this thing that happened that there's a God and God cares about me and I can be connected in a personal way. So I talked to some Christian folks I knew who went to a Bible church and I told them my experience and they said, ah, 
you've been born again. That's what happened to you. I was like, really? So now what do I do? Well, now you join our church and start coming to our church, which I did. And it was great in many, many ways. I learned tons about the Bible and about prayer and started having a daily prayer and meditation, Bible study time. But as I look back, I see in some ways they co-opted my very genuine spiritual encounter and put it in their own terms. And they meant to do good. But I think at that point, I got off track. And although I was still pursuing God, I was doing it on other people's terms. And I stopped looking for God directly myself and instead relied on their guidance. From that point, I went to a Christian college, Nyack College, outside of New York City, and I really felt called to be a missionary. But there was this one problem that kept getting in the way. A problem I I never asked for, I never took on myself, but the problem was that I was a young man who felt sexually and romantically attracted to other young men. Being in the school I was at and the churches that I was attending, this was not a good thing. It was not safe at all because they made it very clear you could not be gay and a Christian. It's one or the other. So that began a process, an odyssey of trying to change. If it's so bad, if God says it's wrong and clearly society says it's wrong, well then the logical conclusion is find a cure. For surely God would help me. I want to ask you a lot about that, but I also want to understand this experience you had. I've had the idea before that there is that experience, what normally gets labeled as a born-again experience, that is channeled in certain ways. So you put it in exactly the words that I've been thinking. What was the experience that you had? Can you talk about that at all? Sure. I had been reading the Bible, and I had been praying, and there was a, a period of seeking. I was involved with the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization, and I remember I went away on a retreat, and I sat in the chapel It was early in the morning, and I wanted so much to connect with God. But I felt there was a blockage there somehow. And I left a little sad, thinking, ah, it would have been nice to have a connection with God. But there's something not right. So I kept reading the Bible, I kept praying, and then all of a sudden, sort of out of the blue, in my room at home, and it was like a veil got pulled back. And... It was an altered reality in that the room just seemed to be very dense with this sweet, sweet presence. So much so that I felt that it was hard to speak out loud. Not because I couldn't, but because it seemed so precious. That to break that with my words just seemed like a critical step to take. So in a whisper, sensing this presence of God, I opened up my heart and I said, God... I want you to be my boss. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. I give my life over to you. And again, in this very, just a little whisper, I I, I did it. And I just felt this closeness enveloping me. And it lasted for some time, well over an hour, that I was in my room just in that quietness. And then it finally began to lift. And I've had the same experience at least uh, four other times in my life of that very closeness, tenderness. Once it was in meeting for worship, but almost always it's been when I've been on my own, completely unexpected. And there it is. And, And when I'm in that moment, it's like things become so crystal clear. 
things get into a much sharper focus of what's important and what's not important and how precious certain things are in this world. And it's, I don't know, I know the early revivalists would talk about getting quickened by the Spirit. And it feels like that to me, like suddenly, like, wait a minute, there's more to this life than just what you see with your eyes and what you feel with your hands. There's a whole reality that's often hidden behind this veil. And part of the work of our worship is to get behind that veil or help that veil get pushed back. Well, that's a wonderful description of it. So, Peterson, after you've had this experience, you've gone to a Christian college, you feel called to the ministry, but you realize you've got this attraction, one that we normally call being gay. What happened from there? Well, that's when I began my quest to fix it. And I took the scripture seriously. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That if you're going to be a follower to Christ, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And although I wasn't about to physically maim myself, what it said to me was I needed to go to whatever extreme length possible to be a disciple of Christ, even if it cost money, time, career, whatever. So I began this odyssey that lasted 17 years and took me to three different continents where I spent over $30,000 attempting to not be gay, either to find a way to transform into a heterosexual or at least to suppress and contain my same-sex desires. And I got involved in something called the ex-gay movement, where they try to make you gay no more through a variety of therapies, prayer, programs. And I would literally go from person to person looking for the remedy. I think for me, I felt very much like the woman with the issue of blood, the woman in the Gospels who had this bleeding problem, who for 12 years, she had this issue of blood. She was bleeding. It was vaginal bleeding she had. And so she was ceremonially unclean based on the Levitical law. So she couldn't touch anyone or touch anything. Plus, she had this genuine problem that was causing her great distress and pain and discomfort. And she, it says in the scriptures in Luke that she went from doctor to doctor. She spent everything she had and grew worse until she finally saw Jesus and thought, well, if I just touch the very hem of his garment, maybe that will work. And she did it secretly, but yet he knew. He knew. He felt power go out of him. And he didn't know who touched him because he kept looking around. Who touched me? What's going on? The disciples, they're, you know, they're like, um, dude, like everybody is touching you. You're like such in a crowd right now. And he's like, no, no, no. Somebody reached me. And he turns to this woman who for years felt like the scum of the earth, an outcast. And he says, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. He doesn't even take credit for it. He says, you had something inside of you powerful enough to make the connection that you needed to make to heal yourself. And so for years, I felt like that woman saying, whatever it takes, I'm looking for the answer. What will it take so that I can contain these desires, suppress them, maybe even change them? And in my journey, it brought me to multiple places. It brought me into a marriage with a woman, which many gay men have tried in, in order to, if nothing else, to pass as a straight person, but often genuinely hoping that God's going to provide what's needed to make this change, often at the great expense of their spouses who have to live in a, a marriage where they don't feel 
attractive. They don't feel loved and almost always ultimately ends in, in divorce and heartache. So I went on this journey and ultimately I landed in a place in Memphis, Tennessee, a place called Love in Action. And it's a residential 12-step program that helps men and women overcome their addictions to homosexuality and compulsive sexual behavior. And I spent two years in that program because, again, I said, whatever it takes, if this is what Jesus wants, I will do it gladly. And went through that whole program, came out just as gay as I started, except came out depressed, confused, and almost faithless. Did you say two years? Two years. But it's residential. Does this? Oh, maybe it's not one of those programs where you're completely shut in. You're you're working. You can do other things at the same time. Yeah. Well, you had to in order to pay the nine hundred and fifty dollars a month. You had to work. So they had us work during the daytime, and then get counseling and therapy in the evenings and on the weekends. But of course, we were forbidden to do certain jobs because they were afraid that there were certain jobs that were not good for us as gay people. So we were forbidden to work in retail, in any store, particularly in a mall. I don't know what that would do to us, but we couldn't. And there was a whole part of town that we, were, we could not go to known as the Forbidden Zone. So I lived in Memphis, Tennessee for two years, never having seen the Mississippi River. That's not fair. It's just not fair. I'd never seen Beale Street. It was madness. And it was only after I graduated from the program and I began to accept who I was that I discovered what a wonderful city Memphis is. Is there fear, and maybe you've since been to those places, is that where all the homosexuals hang out on Beale Street and the Mississippi River? No, there were a lot of drunk straight people I saw there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they would, I don't know what they would do to me, but I think part of it was in those, the Forbidden Zone, yeah, it was the more liberal part of town where the Quaker Meeting House is, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have been able to attend the Quaker Meeting House because it's smacked dab in the middle of the forbidden zone. Mm-hmm. You were part of a church at this time? There's a local church there or is this group specifically a home church? It's a parachurch organization so they farmed us out to other churches for worship and usually they're connected with a particular large mega church in Memphis. At that time it was a church called Central Church since then they've moved on to a Baptist church and so we would be required to go to that church even if it was not your faith tradition at all. But the thing is, to be in the ex-gay movement, you pretty much always had to become an evangelical Protestant because it is a white evangelical Protestant male movement for the most part. And that's the vast majority of the people who go there are, are white evangelical males. Do you have to, I guess since you said it's a 12-step type program, you have to say, I'm a gay, I have to recover? How, how does they do that? You know, I'm an alcoholic and I don't... Yeah. What, what do they actually do? Well, a variety of things. One is the most intensive 12-step you could ever imagine. They wanted us to write about every sexual experience of our life, even if it was masturbation, fantasy, whatever. Write it out in detail, every single thing we ever did in our lives. And then deconstruct it and say how it was evil and how we were really trying to to meet an unmet need by having that. And it could never have been, well, I just was in love with this person and that was an expression of our love. Or it couldn't even be, I just was feeling a little horny that day. It was all about, this is bad, this is evil, this is sinful. 
and you're an addict, and that's why you wanted it. And it demonized any sort of sexual desire you had. But in addition to the 12-step, there were other things they wanted us to do. For one, they wanted us to try to figure out what was the root cause of our same-sex attractions. Because they believe no one is gay, that you just became gay at some point. Though I don't ever remember when that happened. For me, it just always was. And often, though, they turn it on the parents. And they say, ah, there was something in your upbringing that made you gay. And their classic way of saying it is your mom was overbearing and your dad was passive and absent emotionally or physically. And even when you explain, well, that's really not the case for my family, they say, well, think deep. There must have been a moment. And then you think and you say, well, you know, there was that two weeks when my dad went away on that business trip. That's it. That's the moment. Mom became in charge. She became the head of the household. Dad was away. It was your critical moment of development. You became gay. And I think of it often as, um, you know, like horoscopes, when you read the description of your horoscope and it says, oh, let me see, what does it say about Aquarius? Aquarius, you're strong-willed, but at times you can be insecure and you have a creative streak, but, but also you need the attention of others. And you're like, wow, oh my gosh, that's me. And then you're like, oh wait, that's Pisces. Oh, no, no, that's not me. They give you this description that's so general that it could fit almost any family. And you wonder, well, then how come the whole world isn't gay? The other thing that they did was they tried to tinker with our gender because it wasn't just the problem that we had same-sex attractions, but it was a problem that we didn't present in a gender-normative way, that men weren't manly enough and women weren't feminine enough. So they taught us how to play football, how to change our oil. They had us dress in a certain way, which is sort of kind of like business casual you know, so kind of this professional business casual look. Short hair, no facial hair. We couldn't wear cologne. No facial hair. Wait a minute. I thought that would be a manly thing to do. Well, you would think so. But according to them, being in the program, having facial hair was a way of hiding behind a mask. And they wanted to take off all the masks. Strangely enough, most of the staff members had goatees. <laughs> like, um, hello, looks like a mask to me. <laughs> they were often very much looking at what they call FI behavior or false image behavior. Anything you did that they felt was put on to cover over your pain or your true identity. So, for instance, at one point, one of the leaders of the program challenged me because they challenge each other. He says, I want to challenge you. You seem to present in a way that's too European, and that's very gay. Gay men like European things. And that's something I want you to look at. Of course, you couldn't respond because you had to wait over 24 hours before you could make a response. You had to just sit on it and think. So I did. I was like, okay, I'm going to take it seriously. If this is what he thinks, let me see. And I thought, okay, all of my grandparents come from Italy. I grew up in New York, which is technically a suburb of Europe. I had been to Europe at that point eight different times and had lived in it twice in England. So I had certain affectation and dress and, and vocabulary that I picked up from there. So it seemed to be appropriate for me. But in his mind, just like gay men liking classical music and gay men liking, I don't know, baking, this was all a sign that this is false and you need to take on a true identity. Another interesting thing was we were allowed to watch one video a week, a movie, and we would take turns being able to choose the movie. It was like our big outlet. You know, this was the big thing. 
and we got into so much trouble with the whole movie thing because at first the only movies that people picked were classic movies these sort of I don't know all these classic movies that the, I guess people The Sound of Music? Well yeah The Sound of Music was one of them movies that people uh, well the staff said were very gay choices so then we couldn't choose classic movies anymore so then we went to biblical films thinking okay that's good until we got into the problem when we watched the story of uh, Joseph where he was seduced by um, Potiphar's wife. And he was a rather hunky Joseph sitting in a hot tub with Potiphar's wife in this particular version. And, you know, he didn't have a shirt on and kind of had a little loincloth. And, well, that sh- shut down the whole biblical thing. And they said, no more biblical dramas. They are too scantily clothed. So finally, they gave us an approved list of movies we can see. And there were two classes of movies. One, rated G, family, Disney kind of things. Or action and adventure, shoot 'em up Rambo type films. Because although there was cursing and carrying on, it was heterosexual sex that was happening, and it was violence, which I guess was considered assertive and aggressive and masculine. And that, for some reason, did not undermine the spiritual life that they were trying to have us develop. I'm trying to sort this out. <laughs> I see in your face. If the people watching, if yeah. they're listening could see your face, there's a kind of a, a cloud around it right now. Like, what mm-hmm. in the world? Yeah. Well, and I'm also wondering how this was going for you. You're raised Catholic. You have this incredible experience. You decide to get serious about it. Did you identify yourself as gay? Did you think of yourself as gay at 17 when you had your conversion experience? I would not call myself gay, but I totally knew I had same-sex attractions. And I was terrified to say that I was gay because you have to remember, I was a teenager right at the start of the AIDS crisis. And there was a lot of negative stuff up until that point about being gay. So to publicly acknowledge you were gay was a scary thing, particularly in the small community I grew up in outside of New York City. And to admit to myself that I was gay was really hard, too, because I had a lot of internalized homophobia, and that was the last thing in the world I wanted to be. And somewhere along this point, is it before you went to Love in Action that you got married? No, it was before I went to Love in Action because I felt that I was getting a cure. I was going to a church in New York City called Times Square Church, very famous minister named David Wilkerson, who uh, wrote a book called The Cross and the Switchblade, because he worked with gangs in the 50s in New York City. And he was a fiery preacher, and he made it clear that homosexuals would not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he was a fiery, fiery preacher, and I was there five nights a week. You know, anytime that door opened, and every Sunday morning, I was there. And I lived in New York City, but you would think that I lived in some purited town in the 1600s and somewhere else because it was like a totally different reality I had. But I had worked so hard that I was no longer acting out on my same-sex desires other than the you know fantasies that were still in my head. But I was no longer involved in having sex with people and I felt like, ah, I've finally overcome these desires. And I met a young lady at church who was my best friend at the time. And she knew of the struggles that I had had. And we were just 25 and went to the leaders of our church. And and they said, well, God is a God of miracles. 
course God's going to help you and bless you in your marriage and you know, need to do your work. But sure, other people have done it before and God's blessed them and he's going to bless you. Well, I knew other people had done it before, but almost all of those that I'd met, actually their marriages ended in divorce. But, you know, I thought, well, we're going to do it right this time. And we set out to do this and they were naive and irresponsible to tell us that. We were responsible for the choices we made, but as our leaders, they had no business giving us that advice because it was wrong advice, and we both were deeply wounded because of it. So by the time I got to Love in Action, I had been married. We'd gone off to Zambia to be missionaries. I finally made it to the mission field because now I was perceived as a straight married man. So the doors to the mission field finally opened to me. There I was with all of my same desires and it just didn't work and our marriage fell apart and I knew I needed more help that this was crazy so that's when I enrolled in the love and action program because I thought homosexuality is destroying my life it ruined my marriage my job my church relationships it's ruining my faith when really what was ruining it was my inability to accept all the parts of myself I mean, I thought for years I was a Christian struggling with homosexuality, but I really think I was a homosexual struggling with Christianity, particularly a Christianity that said that any sort of love that is not heterosexual love is taboo and must be stamped out. And Lord knows I tried, and it almost destroyed me. Did the rest of Christianity, as you experienced it in those groups, did it fit for you? Was it good, compelling, wonderful vessel to connection with the divine. In many ways it was. I adore the Bible. I really love reading the Bible and many of the gospel stories, the prophets, the Psalms, uh, you know, and, I, and, and it gave me a chance to study the Bible deeply. I went to Bible school and I have still to this day whole chapters of the Bible memorized. You know, I, I just love the, the Bible and I love prayer and I actually went to a fabulous church outside of New York City during those years when I was married. It was a house church that met very much like friends and that we didn't have a minister. We didn't have a program. We sat in a circle and we just believed that the body is supposed to, the body of Christ is supposed to minister to itself. And one had a song, one had a hymn, one had a message. And there wasn't a whole lot of silence, but there was a lot of good ministry And it was in that space that I learned how to discern when I had a message from God or not. And I I learned a great deal about ministry from there and a great deal of things about God. I think one of the sadnesses I have is that I would love to worship and do Bible study and pray and serve with my evangelical brothers and sisters. But too often, because of my same-sex attractions... And because I'm gay and I won't repent of that, that kills it for them. And we can't have fellowship. And I've even had some say, I can't even sit down and have a meal with you because the scripture says you can't, don't even eat a meal with such a one who's sexually immoral. And they're making all sorts of assumptions of what my life is and how I live my life. I mean, I'm not seeing anyone, so I'm, I'm celibate at the moment by default. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, to them, I'm sexually immoral because I refuse to repent. 
I think I need to make a little apology to you. You had this experience of trying to turn you into an ex-gay with a place called Love in Action, and this program's called Spirit in Action. <laughs> and I hope I'm not going to give you flashbacks or post-traumatic tra- like stress. Post-traumatic stress. I'm feeling it. No, <laughs> I'm doing okay. Okay, good. No, and in fact, there's all sorts of crazy counter groups that use love and action. And, the, you know, you think they, some of these groups would be a little more, more creative in some of the names they come up with. But no, I can handle spirit in action. Mm-hmm. So what happened after your experience with love in action? Where'd you go from there, Peterson? Well, I was still in Memphis, and I attempted to live as an ex-gay. And I already had 17 years of trying under my belt and all of these new tools to work with that I had learned in the program. And I became utterly exhausted by the whole thing. And I remember particularly waking up one day, and I was lying in my bed thinking about the day ahead and all of the places I had to avoid. And all of the complicated ways I needed to get my chores done without in any possible way getting into a situation where I might be somehow tempted to lust after a man. Because I believed if you lust in your heart, it's as if you already committed that sin with that person. And lying in my bed, I thought to myself, what are you doing? This is madness. And it was as if I woke up out of a coma. Like I had been in this coma for years. And I couldn't think for myself. And for the first time in almost two decades, it was like my brain locked back into place. And my common sense came in. It was like, you're destroying yourself. And that's when I made a critical decision, a terrifying decision, where I said to God, I need to be real. Even if it means that I have to go to hell, it's more important that I be honest about who I am because you desire truth in the inmost part. And I am fooling no one but myself about this. I have not changed. I cannot change. I will not change. I can live a responsible life, no question. But to say that I can't be gay is foolishness. And that began a journey to accept myself for who I I was and then to unpack everything I believed and try to figure out how do I proceed from here. And did you proceed from there? Did you? No, I'm still lying in that bed, actually. (laughs) Well, actually, what I'm asking is you left that room. When you got out of that bed, you went out there. Are you still part of the church Do they accept you? Because now you're going to be honest. You certainly wouldn't want to lie about who you are if you're going to be who you are. Did they cast you out? Were you just set adrift? Well, the first problem I had was I didn't know what it meant to be gay because I had never really been gay. I only had same-sex attractions. And the only thing I knew about gay were from all the horrible testimonies that people were telling me of what the gay lifestyle was, that the gay lifestyle was a lifestyle filled with unbelievably incontrollable anonymous sex that every gay man had over a thousand sexual partners in their lifetime that there was all this drug and alcohol abuse that people lived irresponsible godless lives that's what i was taught it meant to be gay and i thought i don't think i even have the energy to live that kind of a life you know (laughs) oh my gosh i couldn't possibly keep up plus it must be terribly expensive And I didn't know what to do. So the first thing I did was try to find where are the gay people. And I really didn't know. Do I go to a gay bar? I'm not a bar person at all. It's so, like, 
counterculture to me to go to a bar. So that day I, um, I joined the YMCA because I somehow remember from some old song, YMCA, that it was a gay thing. It wasn't. And I got a great workout. I started swimming. It was great. But there was nothing gay going on about at the Y. So there was this problem. Where are the gay people and what does it mean to be gay? And then miraculously I found in Memphis a whole group of gay Christians. I thought, what? Gay Christians? Wait, I thought you could not be gay and Christian. And at first it was very suspect. I was like, mm, are they real Christians or are they like the phony Christians? And I got to know them and begin relationship and saw the fruit. Because Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And they were fruity in more ways than one. <laughs> but they also had the fruits of the Spirit. And then I met this gay minister, and he gave me a job. He said, Matthew Shepard's mother, Judy Shepard, is coming to town. Matthew Shepard was a young man who was brutally killed a gay man, a horrible hate crime. And his mom has gone around and just talked about the experience and talking about how we need to embrace all people and stop this hatred. So he said, Judy Shepard's coming to town, a historic visit to Memphis. The mayor will be there. It will be the first event that a mayor of Memphis has ever gone to, a gay event. Um, and we would, I would like you to consider writing a poem about what the gay community is like in Memphis. Because he knew I liked to write, and I'd shown him some of my poetry. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. A, I only came out as gay about 10 minutes ago, which was really more like four months before that. But still, it felt like 10 minutes. And two, I'm a Yankee from New York. What do I know about Memphis? And he said, okay, go out and start interviewing people. And he gave me some names. And I interviewed over 100 lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And I discovered that I had been lied to all those years. I found people who were living wonderful, solid, healthy, beautiful lives, lesbian moms and, and gay athletes and bisexual senior citizens and all sorts of amazing people. And doing those interviews helped undo so much of the damage and helped me replace the assumptions I had. So I still struggle, though, with my faith because I read the Bible for years as a weapon against me. And it was very hard to read the scriptures. And it was even hard to walk into a church, even an affirming church, where there was a minister telling us when to sit, when to stand, what to read. It felt so oppressive. It felt like they were saying, our spirituality is better than yours. And I understand some people had much more education than I did, but having been oppressed for so long, it really felt even more oppressive. So I had moved up north to Connecticut, closer to where I grew up. I started working at a private school and then 9-11 hit and I just felt such a longing to connect with God and with a faith community and even though I'd been burnt before many times by faith communities I said I need to and that's when I talked to a Quaker co-worker and decided to go to a meeting for worship it's in Hartford, Connecticut and it, it was one of those meetings where nobody spoke the entire meeting and it was the most glorious hour I had spent in my life in years. In that sacred silence, I experienced God. And there were no words needed. And I thought to myself that first meeting, what do I have to say to God anyway that God doesn't already know? And what better thing to bring to God than my attention? Just to pay attention. Very slowly, I started learning of Quaker ways. I was very tentative, though. I'd go to meeting. 
As soon as it was over, when they did the little howdy-do coffee time, I took off because I was terrified that I was going to get hurt again, and I was shell-shocked. But I went to New England yearly meeting because I said, I like this stuff, so let me find out more. Let me go to some sessions and figure it out. And then I began working with the young friends, the high school kids, and seeing the deep love and the deep spirituality they share among themselves, it melted my heart to the point where I said, I need to join this group. And I applied for membership at my meeting. And in the letter, though, I specifically said, I am gay. I am a homosexual man. I am attracted to other men. If you have a problem with this, you need to tell me immediately. And a lot of people wonder, why do gay people talk about it so much? I hear straight people say that. Why do, when I meet a gay person, why do they have to tell me? Well, part of it is, we want you to know up front. So that before we invest our hearts and our time in a relationship, we know where you stand. And if you've got a problem with it up front, great. Then we'll just move away from that point. So that's exactly what I did with my meeting. And they've been so incredibly supportive of me and in the work that I've begun to develop since then that I just feel so grateful to friends and for the many ways their lives and testimonies have impacted me and helped transform my faith. Have cleared off the table, the leftovers saved. Wash the dishes and put them away. I have told you a story and tucked you in tight at the end of your knockabout day. As the moon sets its sails to carry you to sleep over the midnight sea. I will sing you a song no one sang to me May it keep you good company You can be anybody you want to be You can love whomever you will You can travel any country You can travel any country where your heart leads And though I will love you still You can live by yourself You can live by yourself You can gather friends around You can choose one special one And the only measure And the only measure Of your words and your deeds Will be the love you leave behind When you're done There are girls who grow up strong and bold There are boys quiet and kind Some race on ahead, some follow behind Some go in their own way and time Some women love women, some men love men Some raise children, some never do You can dream all the day Never reaching the end Of everything possible for you Don't be rattled by names By taunts, by games But seek out spirits true 
If you give your friends the best part of yourself, they will give the same back to you. You can be anybody you want to be. You can love whomever you will. Sing it with us. You can travel any country where your heart beats, and know I will love you still. You can live by yourself. You can gather friends around. You can choose one special one. And the only measure of your words and your deeds will be the love you leave behind when you're done. The love you leave behind when you're done. That was Fred Small with his wonderful song, Everything Possible. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet and you're listening to a Northern Spirit radio production called Spirit in Action. We're here with Peterson Toscano, a survivor of 17 years of attempting to become an ex-gay in order to attempt to live up to the mores he learned as a devout Christian. I visited with Peterson at the 2007 Friends General Conference gathering of 1,500 Quakers held at River Falls, Wisconsin. Let's go back to my visit with Peterson. I want to tell you a little story that I hope you'll appreciate, especially since I understand that what you're doing here this week at the Friends General Conference gathering is leading a workshop for young people here about sexuality. I think in most groups that would be verboten. You know, you you can't possibly have a gay person talking. Well, it's actually not about sexuality. No? No. My workshop is about looking in, looking out, and it's about people exploring who they are, their selves, their spiritual lives, their political lives, their identity, and then looking out at the wider world at systems of oppression and seeing how does what happens on the inside of us impact what's on the outside and the other way around and what's our place in the world. Okay. So I misspoke there. But my story will apply just the same because I think there are a lot of churches where people are out there afraid, even if you can have a homosexual be part of your congregation, you've got to keep them away from the kids. And so a couple decades ago in Milwaukee meeting, which I was part of, question came up. We're talking about first day school, and there's a woman present who had four young boys who are part of the first day school. And so the question is, do we have to be concerned about this? And her response to it, you know, they're not getting out of taking their turn teaching first day school just because they're gay. No way. <laughs> great yeah and that was a couple decades ago already so i want to ask you i mean you've gone through this i think it's healing i I think it's been healing that you've been going through but there's a lot of other people who are stuck back there in the love in the action and the ex-gay movement i think you've been reaching out to try and help them and i think you in part do it because one of your things is to perform is to get up and speak so what have you been doing about that well Almost five years ago, I had an epiphany. I realized that there are people who go out in the world, and they have a message, and for a season, they occupy a space, a national, sometimes international space, where they 
share their truth, they share their story, they make an impact, they appear on television programs, radio programs, and newsprint, and they are a presence. Not always for good, but hopefully, you know, to impact and change the discussion and make it more reasonable and, and make some real change. And in this epiphany, it just hit me, you can be one of those people if you want. Your story is, is very powerful, and you tell it well, and if you want, you can step up and become that person. And it was such an open-handed, Holy Spirit-type thing, because it wasn't like, you must do this. If you want it, it's here. And I said, yes, I will do it. And immediately, it as, was as if downloaded into my soul was all this knowledge and wisdom and, and common sense of how to make it happen. I mean, very specific steps and understanding. And the first thing was to produce a one-person comedy play called Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House, How I Survived the Ex-Gay Movement. And then I knew I needed to make it comedy. I needed to market it as some crazy zany thing because people like comedy, although they long for something more. But they won't come to something that's too serious. And my story is ultimately a very serious story. So I wrote the play, workshopped it among certain friends of mine so that they could help me with it, and premiered it in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where the Love in Action program is. Went back to my gay minister friend and did it in his church. And it was a huge hit. So here I was working as a high school teacher by day, but within a year... I was flying off to Seattle for the weekend, from Connecticut to Seattle, doing my show, five shows in two days, and flying back and going back to my classroom for Monday morning. It was insane. But people were hungry because I chose to be nonviolent. I chose to do my play in such a way that I don't attack anyone, even my former oppressors. And I used comedy, and I used storytelling, and I choose to be very vulnerable. So... At first, it was just me doing my show, talking about my experience, coining the phrase ex-gay survivor. And then I began to meet other survivors. People began to come out of the woodwork, people with the most horrendous stories I could imagine of the horrible things that were done to them by people in Jesus' name. More and more, they kept saying, well, where can we go for help? Do you know of any groups? Is there a conference? And there was nothing. There were a few blogs online where people talked about it, but it was mostly activists criticizing the ex-gay movement. So finally, in '05, I met a lesbian ex-gay survivor who had very similar experiences, and we began to talk about this. What do we do? And we decided to start a group called BeyondXGay.com. And in April of this year, '07, we launched the website and partnered with a group called Soul Force to put on a conference, the Ex-Gay Survivor Conference. But we chose to be particularly, well, cheeky about it because we decided to have our conference in the same city and the same week as the Exodus Ex-Gay Conference, which they've been having for over 32 years. They draw about 1,000 people. Many of them are parents trying to sort out their queer and questioning kids. And in less than three months, we drew over 200 people from as far away as Australia and England and Toronto and Florida, Texas. They all, we all came to Irvine, California. And it was this, the epicenter of ex-gayness in the world because <laughs> you had these two conferences going on. And applying principles that I learned as a Quaker and as a teacher, I helped shape this conference with my friends there. 
and some of the things we did to the point where, where we even were able to get three former ex-gay leaders to come forward and issue a public apology for their role wow. in, in all of this and helping them also to to script their apology because it was really hard for them to, re- to really take ownership for what they had done. But working with survivors, it helped them to really center in. We also issued an invitation from ex-gay survivors to any current ex-gay leader if they wanted to sit down, have dinner, and hear about our experiences, particularly because they have no aftercare programs, no follow-up. And three current ex-gay leaders took us up on the invitation. That's integrity. It's integrity on their part. How did that exchange go? It went very well. Now, no senior leadership came or board members, but these are people who run local ministries in in their area, and they came to listen. And they heard things I don't think they expected to hear. For one, they didn't hear anger. They didn't hear bitterness. They did hear heartache. They did hear grief. And at first they just were listening and they were like, wait, can we take notes? And they took out their notepads and they wrote copious notes because they said, we need to go back to the leadership and tell them what you're saying about the loss of faith that many of us had experienced, the depression, the confusion, the guilt, the shame, all this stuff. You know, our, our take is that these experiences cause much more harm than good. Good has come of it. I learned some good lessons. I learned more about the Bible, different things. But ultimately, it almost destroyed me. And almost everyone has gone through this experience one time or another in their life. They have felt suicidal or even have attempted suicide. And I know I definitely felt that for uh, a two-week period of my life where I thought, I have no other option. The only option I have is to take myself out. And they heard that. So much so that some of them came to my show that night and came to our conference the next day. So a, a dialogue is developing, and we're encouraging survivors to come forward and tell their stories. We believe that for people who really care about people and not politics, they're going to hear those stories and say, well, what is the best pastoral care to do for people with same-sex attractions? Is it really in their best interest, in our best interest, to try to make them morph and change into something that's completely unnatural and unhealthy for them? Or do we instead try to figure out how to support people so that they can live lives of integrity and of holiness and of commitment while still being authentic. Were you really able to come to this place where you can dialogue that without going through the phase of having extreme anger? I mean, as you said, 17 years of your life spent in a form of self-abuse. Maybe it's too strong to say egged on by church members. Were you able to get past that? One thing that really helped me was to take personal responsibility in that I allowed them to do this to me. And that really helped free me. If I had just seen myself as a pure victim, they did this to me, how awful, then I think I would still have the bitterness. And there are in the world some true victims, particularly children who have been abused. There are true victims there. But for me... I was a voluntary victim. I allowed people to do that. So what helped me was if I allowed this damage to come to me, then I have the power to undo it. So that freed me up. I also was able, and a lot of it was through friends and and hearing other discussions about other issues in the world, I was able to see that the people who run these programs are victims of the programs themselves. 
they're trapped in that world that says that unless you're straight, you can't serve at the table. You can't serve in the kingdom of God. And many of these men and women would love to be ministers of churches and be missionaries, but they're not allowed, even as ex-gay, because it's not straight enough. And I, you know, I know some of them are the, some of the loneliest people on the earth because they can't talk to anyone about their true struggles for fear they're going to be ratted out to their authorities. And art has helped me doing my play, doing the comedy. It's interesting because a year ago I met Kurt Vonnegut, who recently died, and I spent the evening with him and got to know him and talk to him about his work and my work. And he's obviously a, a great, great writer. And he said something so powerful that sticks with me today. He says, everyone must practice art because art enlarges the soul. I thought, how true. And thank God I had art and theater and comedy to help me, and it has been very therapeutic to me. And that's why at our site, beyondxgay.com, we give people the opportunity to post their art and their poetry and, and all because we need those sort of experiences to help us recover and overcome and to bleed out the bitterness and the anger and the hurt that we feel. Can you give us an example of your art? Sure. There's a monologue that I do. It's a two-minute monologue in which in two minutes through eight characters, I tell my life story. And I love doing it for young people where I'm going to talk to them. They don't don't know what I'm going to talk about because it doesn't mention anything about me being gay. It just talks about the struggle I had with accepting myself. So this is the identity monologue. I don't know why, but for much of my life I've struggled with issues of identity. It's not just accepting myself, but even understanding who I am as a person. No, no, many people, they struggle with issues of identity, particularly the younger people. No, and this is bad. No, it is terrible. No, it is a catastrophe. And I remember when I was growing up, I'd always be looking at other people to see how they live their lives. And I often wondered, well, what were they thinking about me and what were they saying behind my back? And as a result, I wasn't always very honest about who I was. So then I tried to change all sorts of things about myself. You know, externally, the way I did my hair, the way I walked. Oh my gosh, this one time I even joined the soccer team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't make any difference. No one ever treated me better, and I never felt good about myself. Y no sé por qué, pero trataba de cambiar muchas cosas en mi vida. Y gritaba al señor, por favor, ayúdame, cámbiame, sálvame, pero sin éxito. And I don't know why these issues of identity were so complicated for me, but, but they were. But after years of trials and tribulations, I finally came to the place where I understood who I was, and I accepted myself. So now I can say thank you very much. Although the process of self-discovery is a very, very difficult process, it is a very important process all the same. And now when I look at myself in the mirror and I see other people out and about, I often say to myself that the most beautiful people in the world and the most powerful are those people who are unashamed just to be themselves. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. The piece, Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Nomo Halfway halfway house. House. Yes. 
that's the first piece you did, but you've been involved in other plays, actions, yeah. and presentations. What else you been doing? Um, after Homo Nomo Halfway House, I wrote Queer 101, Now I Know My Gay BCs, which is sort of a basics about what does it mean to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And I talk about the gay BCs, how we went from being the gay community to the LGBTIQQMDLSAXYZ community, because we like to include everyone. Then the play I wrote after that, I did a couple of plays with uh, a few other people, but the next solo piece I did was um, The Re-Education of George W. Bush, No President Left Behind, which I'm currently performing. And my next piece that I'm working on is called Transfigurations, which looks at the lives and the stories of transgender and genderqueer and gender different people in the Bible. And I hope it will be a musical. I assume you have all this posted somewhere so that we can find out what your schedule is. You got this play when you're doing this sure. and that? Sure. I travel throughout the U.S. and Europe and Canada, so uh, I show up in a lot of people's back doors and get to meet a lot of friends that way. It's It's been great. And more and more I perform and present among friends uh, because now I have a traveling minute specifically for the work that I do. But I have a website where you can find out about all the work I'm doing and read my three different blogs. I have one in English, one in Spanish, and one in Swedish. My website has all that. It's petersontoscano.com, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N-T-O-S-C-A-N-O.com. And, of course, people are going to be able to find it on my northernspiritradio.org website. We'll have the link there. Thank you for coming in, and thank you for doing this work. It's really wonderful how it's blossomed and how you've blossomed with the work. Thank thank you you so much, Peterson. And thank you for what you're doing. You've been listening to a Spirit in Action interview with Peterson Toscano, ex-gay survivor and theatrical performing artist, including his one-person play, Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy and selflessness To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy and selflessness 